Welcome to this evening's Live from DC program, Election 2020, Two Policy Futures Diverge. I'm Jeff Sawyer, Director of Employer and Professional Network Development in Middlebury College's Center for Careers and Internships. Momentarily, I'll be joined by two professionals who will discuss and domestic policy uh, positions represented by two presidential candidates and the future career activity levels implied by those policies. Later, during the Q&A portion of this program, we'll be joined by a few students with questions about future outlook for policy-related careers. This program is not intended to be a debate of the candidates' policies. Right now, let me introduce our two guests. I'm joined by Chris Matisson, a partner at Federal Hall Policy Advisors, LLC, which is a boutique government relations firm in Washington, DC. Chris has developed many strong relationships with key decision makers in Washington, and he's built a reputation on his ability to work across party lines. He began his career in the office of then House Democratic leader and current Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, and subsequently served in senior roles in multiple congressional offices. Chris is a 2004 graduate of Middlebury College. He will speak to the two candidates' domestic policy set. Welcome, Chris. Also joining in the conversation is Dr. Richard Haas. Dr. Haas is a veteran diplomat, a prominent voice on American foreign policy, and an established leader of nonprofit institutions. He is in his 18th year as president of the Council on Foreign Relations, which is an independent nonpartisan membership organization and think tank. In his lengthy career in the foreign relations arena, he served in a number of capacities within the executive branch. He is the author or editor of 14 books on American foreign policy. His latest book is titled, The World, A Brief Introduction. A Rhodes Scholar, Dr. Haas holds a bachelor's degree from Oberlin College and master's and doctorate of philosophy degrees from Oxford University. Richard is also a proud Middlebury parent of the class of 2016.5. He will speak to the two candidates foreign policy set. Welcome, Richard. Thanks, Jeff. Good to be with you and Chris. We're pleased to have you both with us this evening. Our guests will speak to a select number of domestic and foreign policy matters, but will not be able to cover all policy matters given our time limitations. Let's begin with something that currently is affecting us all, public health, especially during the pandemic. Chris, let's start with the domestic policy side. How would you characterize the two candidates' pandemic policy positions, and where would you see career-related activities under the two future scenarios? Thanks, Jeff. Um, I think the sort of basic uh, disagreement between the two candidates or the basic uh, delineation of their policy uh, uh, projections is, is their thinking about the role of the federal government in the pandemic response itself um, and sort of the willingness to rely on the public health uh, experts uh, sort of regardless of the outcome. Um, we've seen uh, President Trump um, a little more reticent to, to uh, play up the, the need for certain measures to be taken or uh, and downplay the threat of the virus generally. I think um, you know, he, he wanted to run on, on a strong economy and, and therefore was hesitant to take many steps that would uh, have a, a, a negative impact on the economy. Um, that left us with a situation where the governors, um, particularly at the outset, uh, mayors, other sort of executive state and local level were um, 
left to their own devices to kind of set up their policies and procedures for uh, testing and contract tracings and, and things such as that. Um, <clears throat> I think it, uh, Biden uh, has expressed more of a willingness to uh, bring a little bit of leadership role back into the federal government, um, put some national standards forward, um, talk of mask mandates and things, if, if those are, are, are doable, um, you know, and, and, and sort of set an example as to where the states should go uh, with their policies. Um, you know, he kind of thinks that you can't really get the economy back on track until you've addressed the virus. So, you know, maybe more of a willingness to listen to the public health experts, even if it stings a little uh, <clears throat> economically. Um, there's a debate playing out in the Congress um, that sort of either candidate, depending on how they win, depending on who wins, uh, would, would take up the mantle of, which is... Uh, after the passage of the CARES Act uh, back in April, May timeframe, uh, we all kind of thought that there was going to be a pretty quickly thereafter another bill, large bill, uh, relief bill, um, and that as of yet hasn't happened and I don't anticipate that it will um, until after the election. Uh, the timeframe there will be different depending on who wins, I think. I think um, if, if, if it's the status quo, Trump remains the president and the Senate remains in Republican hands, you're likely to see action <clears throat> before the end of the year on a smaller sort of relief package uh, to, to kind of clear the deck uh, for, for the next um, term. So that's not sort of hanging over his head as he enters his second term. Um, they are much more focused on, uh, you know, support for small businesses, uh, liability protections for businesses, the airline industry, uh, things such as that. Whereas the Democrats um, and, and, and likely Biden uh, are much more willing to, to go big on this piece of legislation. The House has already passed um, the HEROES Act, they've called it two versions of it, one at 3.4 trillion, one at 2.2 trillion, um, which encompass all those things uh, as well as significant funding for state and local governments, healthcare workers, you know, and other measures. Um, should Biden win, and and particularly if the Senate flips to to the Democrats, uh, you can expect a much larger piece of legislation. Uh, probably, though, not until the first the first quarter of next year. I think, in terms of uh, the jobs situation this presents, uh, I think it's a growing public policy sector regardless uh, of who wins. I mean, there's going to be a lot of, of uh, attention paid to this. Um, I think, you know, if it's a Biden administration, obviously there'll be more roles within the federal government. Um, there'll be more of an emphasis on sort of understanding what's going on now and, and, and planning for another uh, potential pandemic. Um, but that's not to say in a Trump administration, I think there'll still be a lot of jobs in, the, in, in think tanks, academia, certainly the states, um, things such as that. So I think regardless of the outcome, there'll be some opportunities here. Thanks, Chris. Uh, naturally, Richard, the pandemic's affecting not just the U.S., uh, but the world. How would you characterize the two candidates' pandemic policies from a foreign policy perspective, and what do those positions imply regarding uh, uh, activity levels? Well, the first thing to say is their, their positions on the domestic response could not be more different, and that's a foreign policy issue. Uh, how we how we act here has all sorts of consequences for how we are perceived around the world. And I would simply say that uh, I can't imagine there's too many people around the world who uh, want to emulate our response to, to COVID 
It will also obviously, it is having implications for our economy, for our society, all of which I think will distract us from uh, our ability to be active in the world. So even though we don't think of this as a quote unquote foreign policy issue, it has all sorts of adverse implications. And it's a, you know, for students watching this, it's a textbook case of why the world matters. What began in Wuhan did not stay in Wuhan. Indeed, very little stays local for, for long. And I, if people only internalize one message from COVID-19, it, it's that. And by the way, there'll be a COVID 20 something and 30 something. Uh, this is not a one-off event. Uh, infectious disease is, is, is part and parcel of, of, of globalization, and we need to prepare uh, for that. In terms of uh, differences in policy, besides all the domestic issues that Chris alluded to, I'd say two things, particularly on the foreign policy side. I believe a Biden administration would very quickly re-enter the World Health Organization, not because it is not flawed, but because it is flawed. And we are more likely to have influence over it if working from the inside rather than simply criticizing from the, uh, uh, from the outside. I also believe the United States would probably find a way to participate in the global vaccine effort. And there's a global effort underway to develop, manufacture, and distribute a vaccine. It's the right thing to do from a public health point of view. It's the right thing to do from a humanitarian point of view. It's also the right thing to do from self-interest. If it turns out that vaccines are first developed elsewhere, we don't necessarily want to be at the end of the queue. So I think uh, the Biden administration would be uh, much more involved. In terms of careers, look, there's everything from the World Health Organization, which is part of the UN uh, system. It's also a fantastic area for NGOs, for non-governmental organizations, groups like Médecins Sans Frontières, or Doctors Without Borders, if you, if you prefer, AmeriCares, uh, the International Rescue uh, Committee. There's an endless number of groups that are helping people, vulnerable populations uh, around the world. And this could be something for those who have do medical skills, doctors, nurses, what have you, or, or a, wide, a wider set of uh, skills. So tremendous opportunity there, and obviously in policymaking areas, the NSC, I think in a Biden administration, you'll probably see the standing up or the recreation of a dedicated cell of people uh, working on this. Uh, the Council on Foreign Relations a few days ago, we just came out with a, a large task force report on preparing for the next pandemic. We called for the uh, creation of a job of a U.S. coordinator on this issue. It's a major national security challenge. And if that were to happen, there'd be a whole office of people. So I don't think there will be any shortage of uh, job opportunities, and not just at the federal government, obviously, and not just internationally, but also state, state and local. Makes sense. Okay, let's turn to another area, which has large domestic and global implications, uh, the environment and climate change. Chris, on the domestic side, paint the picture of the two policy futures that could exist for the U.S. Uh, as relates to environmental matters and climate change. Um, given these two policy-driven futures, where do you see differences in the level of career-related activities? Um, yes, yeah, so I think this is an area where there's a pretty significant divergence uh, in, in their policies. Um, Trump has spent, uh, you know, his first term, uh, you know, deregulating um, at the EPA and the Department of the Interior and other things, you know, some of the some of the um, environmental regulations that that um, previous administrations and, and the Congress have put in. Um, 
he's skeptical of the man-made nature of, of climate change. Um, and, and Biden, on the other hand, you know, talks about a clean energy revolution, really leaning into it, um, kind of maybe one of the crown jewels of, of, of his policy in general, economic, environmental, everything is sort of uh, trying to address this problem. Um, he has uh, um, a policy to set standards at the federal level for emissions, for alternative energy use, um, things of that nature. Um, President Trump uh, wants to expand um, domestic fossil fuel production. He's opened up some of the um, you know, public lands and things to, to drilling and mining activities there, um, where, uh, as previously mentioned, Biden's a little more focused on the alternative energy. I mean, he's very clear, at least in his campaigning, that, that he is not going to ban even the most controversial extraction methods, fracking and otherwise, um, you know, and, and historically as a senator has sort of been, you know, somewhat accepting of that type of stuff. So, um, uh, but the, the party's obviously, you know, gone in a little bit of a different direction there. Um, he's not endorsed the Green New Deal, which a lot of people have heard about, a very aggressive uh, climate policy measure from some of the Democrats. Um, but, you know, he'll, he'll be uh, focused on, on, on the climate issue. Um, I've noticed a lot in the last couple of years uh, on Capitol Hill uh, and within the parties that while there's a little bit of a disagreement on the causes of climate change, things of this nature, there's, there's more of an opportunity than ever, I think, for the parties to start working together on on some of the response to what's going on, because, you know, you can't deny flooding and, and fires and some of the things we're seeing. So um, I think there there will be an opportunity for some activity on, you know, mitigation, um, remediation, you know, things that if this is going to continue to happen, which it appears that it is, you know, there, there's going to be some some um, policy measures that are going to need to go into place regardless of, of where you come down on the, you know, causes of it. Um, I think uh, from a jobs perspective, under a Biden administration, this will be a huge um, area for, for job growth in the public policy sector. I think you'll see every agency, um, you know, f having dedicated people focused on the climate. You'll have, um, he's talking about a, a climate czar, you know, which would obviously have a huge organization under it if, if that were a role that he'd create. Um, Capitol Hill, they're already tackling these issues. Um, and then the, the sort of not-for-profits, think tanks, things of that nature. Um, in, the, in a Trump administration, um, I think a little bit less uh, effort um, from the federal government to, to address the issues. Um, but, you know, the private sector, based on what's happened in the EU, and they see the writing on the wall and, and are focused on, on these policy types of prescriptions. And, and uh, and and so they're kind of leading a little bit, expecting to to at some point come under some some more significant regulation. Um, and then you know there's always California there too, where where they're kind of the tip of the spear, the large blue states, which are which are giant apparatus uh, that are that are going to be um, trying to address address these issues um, at that level. Okay, thanks. So Richard, uh, the U.S. under the Trump administration withdrew last year from the Paris Climate Agreement. Uh, Biden has said he would rejoin the accord. Uh, what did these two future scenarios mean relative to the level of foreign policy activity, and therefore career role opportunity uh, differences under each scenario? Well, let me just say one or two things about the policy and then we'll talk about careers. Uh, 
it's true that a Biden administration would rejoin the Paris Climate Agreement. That said, uh, to me, that's not a big deal. It's more symbol than substance. The Paris Agreement is based upon voluntary national uh, goals. Nations can be uh, as ambitious or as modest as they wish to be when they set their goals. They can also change their goals if they, they wish to. It's all voluntary. It's not a very significant agreement, even if it were met in full, climate change would continue to happen. A lot is baked into the cake, a lot more would be added, and many, in many cases, countries may fall short. So I don't think Paris is the center. Now, there might be some future agreement that would have more significance. I'm a little bit skeptical. Uh, I don't think that kind of universal top-down multilateralism has a great future, be it in climate, in trade, or in anything else. I think we're going to have to find other ways to uh, deal with it. It might be through trade agreements. I can imagine some future trade agreements will create market barriers to, to countries that want to export to them if they, for example, use certain energy sources or don't set certain regulatory policies. You might have certain countries dealing with climate, not again, not a universal uh, approach. I think it's going to have to be a lot more creative than simply thinking Paris uh, or, or, or some version of uh, um, setting up a market system, a carbon tax. I'm just skeptical of these universal uh, approaches, not, not against them necessarily, just, uh, just skeptical. I also think there'll have to be some mechanisms, almost like there is for sharing of drugs, for prescription drugs. There may need to be some mechanism globally for sharing green technology uh, to make things uh, uh, widely uh, affordable and, uh, and available. Uh, in terms of careers, um, the answer is it's everywhere. I think it's going to be useful not to think of climate as a, a silo. But if you go to work for any business in America, if you go to work for a financial firm, there's going to be a consideration of climate, whether it's on a portfolio or in how business is done. I, I just don't think it's separable. I think it's going to be pervasive to essentially everything, uh, everything that is, is, is done. Uh, so whether it's government, business, NGOs, nonprofits, it, it's just going to, it's going to be a major, major uh, uh, consideration. I also think, uh, and this gets more you know, into the academic and intellectual side, the emphasis won't just also be on, on mitigation. Yes, that's a big slice of it. But there's two other dimensions to climate change. One is resilience, sometimes called adaptation. No matter what we do, climate change is, is already happening and it will continue to happen. So the question is, how do we minimize its effect? Whether the effects are forests or floods or severe storms uh, and so forth. Uh, I mean, certain countries like Bangladesh face fundamental uh, threats, obviously coastal areas in the United States, low-lying areas do. So the question is, how do we build resilience? Uh, how do we make ourselves uh, less vulnerable? The other area, more controversial, granted, is geoengineering, is that if the combination of mitigation and uh, adaptation or resilience are inadequate, how do we basically turn to science to try to reverse climate change, essentially through blocking uh, heat from the sun uh, reaching the United States? It could also mean taking certain emissions, pushing them underground or what have you. And I think that's going to become a, a much bigger area. I know it's controversial, but it should not be seen as an alternative to either mitigation or adaptation. It's simply going to be one more tool, one more approach. And I just, when I look at the future of the world, my own view is it's going to be necessary. I just don't have the confidence that when I look at China, I look at India, uh, 
between them are over 3 billion people, oh, close to 3 billion people. I just don't think there is going to be the political commitment uh, to, to take certain steps or avoid certain energy paths. Uh, I'll just say 30 seconds more. You know, I, was, I was once having a conversation with uh, the Minister of Electricity in India's government, and I was, make, I was talking about climate, and he said, uh, Mr. Ambassador, I understand your point, but um, we still have 500 million people in our country who don't have regular access to electricity, and that's an untenable situation. And making it available is more significant for us than how the, the electricity is generated. So I just think we face all sorts of pushback in the mitigation effort, and I think we need to have a, a comprehensive approach to climate change. And this is where, again, uh, people at the forefront of uh, science and engineering and business, that, that, that intersection uh, could have an, an enormous uh, impact. So obviously a very complicated uh, situation um, and with complexity comes opportunity. So it certainly sounds, uh, based on both of your descriptions, there'll be plenty of activity uh, for students that are interested in this particular arena. The other thing both of you have mentioned is it comes back to economics. And so let's turn our attention a little bit uh, to the economic policy prescriptions. So, so Chris, talk to us about those being proffered by the candidates. Uh, how would you summarize them? And given their diverging areas of emphasis and approach, where would you see growth areas um, for those interested in policy-related careers? Yeah, so, <clears throat> you know, the first thing to kind of discuss really the economy is is the pandemic again. I mean, I alluded to it a little bit in the beginning, uh, but in a, in a Biden administration, you'd see in the first quarter probably a very large uh, investment from the federal government in, in a relief effort. Um, on top of that, or along with that, depending on how scared off moderate Democrats get them voting for something like that, I think there uh, is probably going to be a, an effort to do a, an infrastructure type of stimulus bill, get people back to work, infrastructure is crumbling anyway. Um, the the house has already passed their sort of marker there. Um, and, and I think, you know, that could be the basis for for another um, type of stimulus package, not as much relief, but looking forward, getting people back to work, uh, getting money in the economy. Um, if you remember, uh, after the financial crisis, um, Obama and Biden administration came in and uh, they passed a stimulus package pretty early of a quaint little $800 billion um, that, uh, you know, we've dwarfed that with these relief packages that we've been doing now. But, um, you know, the sort of end result there was people thought it didn't go far enough. Um, you know, they, they could have gone a lot harder. There's obviously a political will problem, not just from Republicans, but, but uh, uh, you know, moderate Democrats who don't like to attach their name to multi-trillion dollar bills. But I think Biden will remember that and, and want to go big. And, and certainly the various chairmen of the, uh, of the uh, committees of jurisdiction on the Democratic side, should they be in control in the Senate and, and they will be in control in the House, uh, have decades of, of priorities. So there's no shortage of, of stuff there. Um, taxes, obviously, is a major uh, area of disagreement between the two candidates uh, affecting the economy. Um, that uh, Trump uh, signed the Task, Tax Cuts and Job Act, Jobs Act in 2017, um, which basically cut uh, taxes significantly for a large portion of, of people and, and specifically corporations. Um, uh, that sort of led to pretty significant deficits even before the, the um, COVID-19 problem. Um, but his, his, he's running on expanding that, more tax cuts, um, you know, keep, keep that going. 
Uh, Biden, on the other hand, is saying he wants to raise the corporate tax rate from 21 up to 28, which is still significantly less than it was about 35, I think, before the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. He wants to tax uh, high uh, income individuals and, and households, um, has pledged not to tax anybody under $400,000 a year of income. Um, you know, you're going to have to pay for a lot of these, these policy priorities, be it the environment, um, the pandemic, healthcare, things like that. So you just, that kind of goes with the territory. Um, another issue, uh, healthcare is an important economic issue we're seeing, you know, where this, this kind of Supreme Court situation, you're hearing a lot about it and how, how it's playing out. Um, there's a lot of talk if, if, if the Affordable Care Act is struck down, which may or may not happen, um, you know, where does that leave people with pre-existing conditions? Uh, the Trump administration has been sort of teasing their replacement for, since basically, he was elected and and haven't really seen any policy prescriptions yet to to kind of go off of um but biden on the other hand you know he was there famously with the you know big bleeping deal uh to obama when they did pass the affordable care act um he wants to expand that make that work um this the the most important kind of that they didn't get to address that I know they really wanted to is creating a public option um, uh, for, for healthcare. And I think he'll, he'll start there and, and really push hard to, to have a, a public option to compete with the private insurance companies and, and hopefully bring costs down there and put some of the more, um, you know, less wealthy people on that. Uh, we touched on the environment um, already as, as it relates to the economy, but it, it, it merits mentioning again It'll be a clean energy economy under Biden. Um, you know, he he. There will be a lot of investment there that'll just resonate throughout the the, the industry. For for me personally, as a sort of multi-client uh, lobbyist, a lot of uh, the areas where I see business development opportunities are kind of within this, particularly in the financial sector. As the ambassador mentioned earlier, uh, it's going to be pervasive throughout sectors of the economy, uh, the financial industry in particular is, uh, is, you know, on the block, be it the insurance companies, but also the banks and, and, and investment companies. And, and there's a lot of um, attention paid on what their investment are, how climate risk plays in, um, you know, there's going to be a lot of, of discussion on that. And, and the other sort of big kind of business opportunity I see is related to uh, diversity and inclusion. Um, policy under a Biden administration. When, when the Democrats took the House in 18, for example, again, the financial services industry, the, the House Financial Services Committee stood up a subcommittee on uh, diversity and inclusion. There's a lot of attention paid by the Democrats to those issues uh, in corporate governance. And uh, I, I see that certainly in the financial sector, uh, but spreading out, you know, across government agencies. So from a jobs perspective, um, you know, the public sector in general, there are thousands of jobs that just were never filled uh, in the Trump administration. Those will be open on day one. I, I think there are opportunities both obviously in the political appointee types of roles when an administration changes, but just filling up the, the career jobs. Uh, there'll be some opportunities there. Um, and again, you know, this, this climate, climate issue and, and, and all of the policies surrounding that uh, just economic economy wide um, will we'll pre present jobs for public policy uh, positions. Thank you, Chris. So Richard, about uh, the international side. So your views of the candidates for prescriptions for international economic policy, including trade, 
and the U.S. role uh, in the global economy. Look, so much to say. Look, let me let me make a couple of points. One is whoever wins is going to uh, have a situation of low interest rates. The Fed has made that clear. So monetary stimulus will will essentially remain in effect for at least another couple of uh, years. And that can stimulate the economy overall. It helps those who have financial instruments and assets, uh, but it's not directed. So I think as Chris correctly pointed out, there'll be a big debate about fiscal policy, about the content of it. There'll be fiscal stimulus, no matter what. what. The question will be how it's targeted. And Democratic ideas will be very different, I would argue, I would think, than uh, Republican similarly tax would be uh, uh, very different. The one area I don't have a good answer on, because uh, it's uncertain with both, is trade policy. The, you know, Mr. Trump uh, you know, sees trade as essentially, in many ways, rigged against us. He incorrectly largely attributes most job loss to trade. When it's not, it's because of productivity and innovation. Uh, and just as an aside, whoever wins had better think seriously about reskilling and retraining of workers uh, because that's a structural problem, but COVID-19 and the displacement will accelerate it. So there's this question of a lifelong education and training, providing safety nets so people can make economic transitions. You know, the average student graduating from Middlebury today is probably going to have 15 or 20 jobs in the course of their lives. Well, we're not built for that as an economy. Uh, as a society. So whoever wins is going to have to deal with that. Again, uh, to me, the, the most significant trade question, is really, I guess, two. One is whether the United States finds a way to join what used to be called the Trans-Pacific Partnership, this collection of countries out in the Asia Pacific representing about a fifth or a quarter of global GDP. Will we become part of it? I believe we'll, we should. It uh, makes sense economically. It makes sense strategically vis-a-vis -vis China. The question is, would we? If so, on what terms? Mr. Trump has trashed it, but uh, oddly enough, he used almost all of its, uh, big parts of its text in order to reach the agreement with Mexico and Canada. So even though it was a quote unquote terrible agreement, it wasn't so terrible that he couldn't incorporate large chunks of the text into, a, uh, into the USMCA. So it shows to me that he is in principle prepared to sign trade agreements. He did get it through Congress, which was a significant uh, accomplishment. So I, one big issue is whether uh, or how either President uh, Trump or Biden would go about trade. And that, it's just really important because it will be one of the engines, one of the locomotives of U.S. and global economic recovery coming out of, uh, uh, out, out of the, the, the pandemic. And that's just a big, big question. And the politics in both parties are fraught. So neither side, shall we say, has been particularly... Uh, uh, forthcoming. Two, one or two other issues internationally that will come up. One will be supply chain securitization. Right now, supply chains have largely been designed along questions of uh, cost uh, and efficiency. And I think coming out of COVID-19, there's going to be a bipartisan movement to rethink supply chains and rethink American dependence on narrow foreign sources of supply. It might be new calls for stockpiling, new calls for domestic production of certain uh, technologies or say things that go into medicine that are deemed to be socially uh, essential. So I think you're going to see a, a whole movement there that will attract bipartisan support under either uh, a President uh, Biden or a, uh, a President Trump. And another area that you're going to see is new controls on technology trade with China. 
again, on a, indeed China policy more, we can talk about it later, but there'll be lots of similarities potentially either way the election in this country goes. One of the areas we're going to see is more constraint on the flow of technology to China and on the inflow of uh, investment from China where the investment is in areas of significant, that'll happen uh, regardless. In terms of uh, career ideas, again, it's just about everywhere. Whether you're talking the financial world, the business world, the consulting world, government at every level, academic. The only thing I'd add is as we've already seen in the market and elsewhere, um, there's winners and losers and what always in the economy. And I think what COVID-19 has done is again, has accelerated winners and losers. We're seeing uh, certain sectors of the economy, certain companies do extraordinarily well. Obviously it's been awful for restaurants, for retail, places where you have to congregate for travel, for sports. Well, the question is at some point do these areas recover once we have therapeutics, vaccines, maybe wider use of masks. So there could be recovery. Now it may not be the same entities, there'll be churn. And I think there'll be greater churn in the economy than usual. But it seems to me the opportunities in the economy will be enormous in technology, uh, with normal churn. So you know, restaurants will come back to New York. It just won't be the same restaurants uh, and so forth. So I think the economy, what's going to happen is economic transitions are going to be telescoped. So for the next couple of years, there'll be actually, I think, uh, enormous opportunity in our economy. What's slowing it down is obviously COVID. But once again, this combination of therapeutics, vaccines and behavior, once we get this under control, we want to eliminate it just to be clear. We're looking at a future of reduced or managed risk. But once we get that risk down to a manageable level, then I think you'll see enormous economic growth. And it sounds like, you know, underlying both of your comments, technology kind of becomes a, a I'll call it a gorilla in, in terms of an opportunity area, uh, both domestically as well as abroad. And when I think about it, and, and Chris, if you can take just a couple of minutes to talk about what you kind of foresee as the uh, technology policy sets that may distinguish the two uh, sides uh, as we kind of go forward. Sure. <clears throat> I think, um, you know, the technology area is frankly the area where they're the closest together. If you can, you know, imagine that it's, it's obviously there's a lot of disagreement and, and it's a huge issue. But, um, you know, some of the some of the main topics that, that we see in, in Washington and have been seeing are the data privacy issue, um, which is um, you know, an issue of convergence between the two parties in Congress that something needs to be done to kind of rein in the, the, the data companies and, and keep people's data private. Um, so there's an agreement there, but, but how to tackle it, there's a little bit of a disagreement, but there, there, there's serious efforts to do it. And I think, you know, the Democrats um, generally want to create a floor uh, for sort of a protection of, of data um, and, and data security that and encourage states to kind of go above that and their regimes to, to protect data. Um, whereas the Republicans, I think, want a ceiling where, you know, they have a blanket um, policy or, or, or um, regime to uh, protect data and then the states can kind of come up to meet that. Um, they're not terribly far apart on those things, but it's still it's still very hard to kind of get that done because the you don't want a situation where one state sets a very rigid standard and, and everyone else is sort of um, captured by that and any company that operates in that state or any state 
related to that has to apply. So, you know, that, that's a, the one area. The other big area is the antitrust situation with the, the giant um, tech companies. I think there's, again, a, a, a kind of, they both agree that something needs to be done there. I think under any administration, that's going to be a, a bloodbath. I think they're going to come hard at, at those companies. They, they think they're too big, too powerful, have too much data, too much of a big brother situation. The conservatives think there's anti-conservative bias uh, in, the, in social media. So, so they're going to come down hard, hard there. Um, one other issue, I think investment R&D in tech, um, I think maybe a, a Biden administration, you'd see a little more um, just like in, in anything I've been talking about, but a little more willingness to spend some money uh, from the federal level to do some research and development and, 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 and kind of encourage that type of thing. From the jobs perspective, I think, as I mentioned, antitrust law, if anybody's interested in that, probably uh, some opportunities there. And then uh, my profession, lobbying, um, there's going to be a big, you know, as these regulators and, and the Congress come down hard on these companies, I think they're going to need a lot of help in Washington. Um, 15, 20 years ago, um, they were very late to the game in, in Washington. The, even the huge companies, Microsoft back then, it took forever to set up a DC office. And then they finally kind of realized that you can be regulated out of billions of dollars or regulated in, into bankruptcy um, if, you, if you don't keep your eye on, on the ball here. So it's already happening and been happening, but I think uh, you know, you're gonna see just more expansion of uh, advocacy within the, the tech industry here as, as the, the hammer comes down. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So areas like cybersecurity clearly uh, will continue to be important. Um, intellectual property will continue to be important. Uh, but some of the other areas, when I think of technology broadly, that you've already mentioned, uh, both of you, in terms of the environment uh, and uh, alternative uh, energy sources, clearly. Uh, will also involve a bunch of technology, or to Richard's point, the, um, I'll say, retooling uh, of our economy and the opportunities associated with that. Well, a quick, quick point on the, our, uh, the data. I'm sorry, Chris, go ahead. Sorry, the data, the data privacy issue and the cybersecurity issue go hand in hand. I mean, yeah. there, that's the, the, the point there is to protect the data, keep it out of the wrong hands, you know. So, um, very, very true on cybersecurity. So let's turn our attention to uh, diplomacy and defense. Uh, and, you know, Richard, I'm going to ask you to, to bring this portion of the program to closure uh, with your comments. Um, obviously, over the, the last several years, we've witnessed numerous U.S. withdrawals from global organizations like the WHO and multilateral trade agreements like the TPP and the prospect of a withdrawal from, from NATO. So I'm just curious what you think the big geopolitical challenges uh, are. And how do you think differing foreign policy agendas uh, will affect the United States' power to influence the global agenda? Uh, give me 30 seconds just to talk a little bit about technology internationally, sure. and then I'll get there. Uh, and I think we're at a moment where particularly in areas like AI, artificial intelligence, and robotics, uh, the pace of innovation is extraordinary and the application is unlimited. And one of the interesting things though, there's very few people who understand the technology and then other things, or the people who understand other things, the legal, the commercial, whatever, don't understand the technology. So it's a great, it's a great argument for dual majors at Middlebury, but uh, anyone who basically uh, can work in and understand applications of technology, tremendous advantage, uh, it'll, and it'll affect everything. Uh, I mean, we've talked, every issue we've talked about tonight, say public health. 
or the ability to early on uh, identify certain patterns that will tell you there has been an outbreak and so forth. So th there's, there's no area that we've talked about that won't be affected by uh, technology. Also the question, this kind of segues into the other course, uh, Jeff, is uh, the idea of foreign interference in American politics is obviously technology uh, based and how we make it harder to do that and how we also try to deter or push back uh, against Russia and, uh, and others. So um, the question of how do we regulate globally the internet? Uh, it's probably the least regulated domain in international relations. Uh, there's virtually no rules. It's the wild west. And uh, the issue is uh, what sort of rules ought there to be and who sets them and what happens when they're violated? And are we moving towards multiple domains, multiple internets? And if so, what are the implications of that? So this is a, a big area, both for technologists, for people who come at it more my way, which is from international relations or foreign policy. These are rich, rich uh, and growing areas. In terms of diplomacy, uh, look, uh, the, the differences will be profound in most areas. I think the biggest difference with the Biden administration will probably be two. Uh, one would be uh, a greater willingness, a far greater willingness to work with partners and allies, much less unilateral. The basic instinct of a Biden administration when there's a challenge is to go to others and work with others in Europe and Asia in particular, unlike the Trump administration, whose basic instinct has been to keep allies at bay and act unilaterally. And second of all, uh, it's, there's a belief in multilateralism, and I believe in the Biden camp. So you'll see a rejoining of certain agreements, institutions, the Trump administration, uh, since I, I coined the phrase, the withdrawal doctrine, I don't see that changing. In my experience, rarely do second term presidents uh, move dramatically away from what they did in their first term and they believe got them reelected. So I do think there'd be actually a significant difference. That said, as I pointed out before, a lot of the institutions that are out there aren't adequate. So a big question for a Biden administration won't be whether they rejoin this or that agreement, but whether they can come up uh, with better agreements or better institutions that uh, show more promise to deal with regional or, or global challenges. Where I don't think there'll be some enormous differences uh, are such things um, as probably moving closer to India. I think that's been a trend that's been in, in existence for several decades. Implicit in that is also a very difficult relationship with China. Might be different emphases, trade, human rights, uh, South China Sea, Taiwan. But I think this is a very difficult relationship going forward, no matter who wins here. One big reason is because of Xi Jinping. He, he is, uh, he's a very different kind of leader domestically and internationally. This is a more repressive China at home, a more assertive China uh, abroad. We are going to have to uh, deal with that. Mr. Putin is not going to change his uh, spots. And whoever wins the election is going to have to deal with the fact that in February, the principal nuclear arms control agreement is due to expire. So there's, there, there's issues there. Whoever gets elected is going to have to deal with North Korea and Iran. I think the different approach would be, I think the Biden administration would likely, I say likely, be more willing to embrace traditional approaches to diplomacy and arms control Mr. Trump basically hasn't, whether it's his personal diplomacy with North Korea or his approach to Iran, which is essentially rejected diplomacy and instead try to bring about regime change through sanctions. Again, I think a Biden approach would be a much more traditional diplomacy. But let me say one last point. Whoever is elected, whoever sits in the uh, Oval Office come January, 
and I'll make the assumption that they're not sharing the Oval Office come January. At some point, there will be a, a clear winner in this election. Uh, he is going to face a reality where the domestic demands on the president are going to be enormous. COVID-19 will still be raging. Millions of people uh, unemployed. Uh, deep political divisions, possibly worse political divisions than ever if the election is seen by 45% of America as tainted or illegitimate, uh, racial divisions that are, 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 are deep and so forth. So the, one of the challenges on the foreign policy side will be essentially getting the focus there. Of course, there'll be a tremendous pull, almost a gravitational pull on who's ever sitting in the Oval Office to, to deal with things here at home. Now, obviously, Ultimately, that's part of national security as well. We can't be effective in the world. We can't set a good example to the world if we don't have, if we don't, uh, have things here at home working fairly well. But, uh, but I do think that will limit uh, certain things that we're prepared to do uh, in the world. And I think one of, but I do think even here though, there'd be a difference where Mr. Trump would be much more willing, consistent with what I said before, to pull back troops from alliances. Uh, we've, he's already started in Europe. He could continue in Europe. He could add that to Asia. Whereas I do not think Mr. Biden would go down that path. Mr. Biden, uh, I believe, would be much more inclined to support a lot of the foreign policy infrastructure, the core infrastructure in Europe and Asia, that I would argue has served this country extraordinarily well for 75 years. Mr. Trump's default option is to disrupt. I do not believe that is shared by Mr. Biden. Oh. We've covered quite a range of possible futures in this discussion. Uh, some areas we see widely divergent policy prescriptions and, and perhaps in a few closer alignment. Uh, obviously election outcomes down ballot will also affect future imp implementation of policy. Um, I'd like now like to turn uh, to a few career related questions from our students. Uh, joining us for this portion of the program are Sabrina Roberts, who's class of 21 at the college, majoring in international politics and economics. We have Ash Hamad, class of 20 at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies in Monterey, pursuing a master's in international policy and development and international trade and economic diplomacy. We also have Jasmine Owens, class of 21 at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies in Monterey, pursuing a master's in nonproliferation and terrorism studies. And lastly, we have Drew Platt, class of 21 at the college, majoring in global security studies. So Sabrina, why don't you uh, kick us off with questions? Yes, of course. So thank you, Dr. Haas and Mr. Matisse. this has been super interesting. We've all really enjoyed it. Um, I'm wondering, so we know that working for a federal government agency, a think tank, an NGO, or just in DC in general is impacted by politics, especially during the year of a presidential election. And I'm wondering which of these careers would you say are more stable during periods of political change and which of these career paths are in highest demand during times of political change? Um, go ahead, Chris. I'll just say briefly, I, I think, um, you know, within the federal government, I alluded to it earlier, there are career positions and there are political positions. The career positions generally stay there. Um, they've gotten a little more political 
of late, um, as you may have noticed. Um, but but I think you know there are a lot of positions, a lot of agencies, at least on the domestic side. And I'm, I'm sure even probably more so. Uh, uh, Dr. Haas can speak to it. But um, I, I think you know within the government there's that. But in the think tanks, they're going to be operating regardless. Firms like mine are operating regardless if if, if they're if they're prepared. Uh, so there, there's a lot of jobs out there, and you know the political jobs. Are still there too. There might be a few less, and 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 those are good ways to, to get into the other stuff as well. Yeah, I mean, most of the jobs are not affected by policy. Think about the military, the intelligence, the foreign service. These are career positions. Every president, by the way, when I'll say he gets elected, because there's only been he so far, uh, there's about four thousand political appointments this individual makes. That's a it's the top layer, but it's it's a pretty thin layer. Because that's the entire government. That's that butter spread pretty thin on the bread. Uh, so most of the jobs in the career bureaucracy are just that. They're career bureaucracy uh, on the civilian side or the, the specialty side. So there's an enormous number of positions. It's different. Uh, and the, and the, the election year is obviously different for the Congress. Indeed, I, and so for, it was my first job was in the, the Senate. And I, I often recommend that. It's an easier place sometimes to break in. And there's, 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 and they have, they have their own uh, political cycles, obviously state and local. I mean, in you know, New York City, for example, where I hang out usually, uh, and we're about a year, just over a year away, 14 months away from a, a mayoral election. And most of the city council is also going to be turning over. So there'll be, you know, all, so there's both career jobs, but there's, there's political jobs and campaigns can be great, great ways to get involved. And then often if, if you're lucky enough to choose the, the right uh, candidate. And then there's, you know, whether it's lobbying or think tanks or academics uh, or NGOs, there's a, uh, it actually turns out only a small percentage of the jobs are affected by, by politics. Let me say one other thing, because Jeff and I talked about this. Uh, if you happen to be a conservative and there's a liberal power that be in Washington, or if you tend to be progressive and there's a more conservative, uh, I wouldn't let that totally throw you. Uh, I think when you're in the starting out phase of careers, I think there's a powerful argument, particularly at the federal level, for getting experience and tooling up and getting smart. No one's going to hold it against you if you're 26 years old and you're working in the bowels of the Pentagon for uh, or the State Department or wherever. At this point, uh, tooling up, learning how government works, picking up skills and so forth seems to me You'll have really important. You'll have then decades to ultimately pay back, and as you get more senior, yeah, then you have to make more political, more slightly more political calls. Do you want to work for this individual or in this policy environment? But I think starting out, you, you kind of get a freebie or two. You get a couple of passes, and uh, just to get the experience to to get smarter, get exposed, and it's also a great way to figure out. Uh, you know, what, you, what you're interested in and so forth. So I wouldn't be put off. I mean, again, so let's, on the assumption that a lot of people here lean more towards the progressive end, might not be voting for President Trump if he were to be reelected. I wouldn't therefore say I would never go to Washington then. The question is, can you still learn? Can you still make a difference uh, at whatever level you're there? So don't let the high level politics necessarily dictate your choices. It's even more of a reason uh, to, to come and, and participate and, and learn. And I think a good, you know, a politician would want all manner of opinions uh, uh, under uh, him or her. So, uh, so you know, 
Yeah, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> Good advice. <laughs> Ash, do you have a question? Yeah, I do. Um, first, thank you both for your time and your insights. My question really surrounds our discussion about multilateralism and our current administration's um, kind of skepticism of the multilateral system. However, it hasn't really just been all bark demonstrated by their withdrawal from the World Health Organization. So my question to you both is, could this be the first step in a series of U.S. withdrawals from multilateral institutions? And what does the future look like uh, for the WTO, for example, under a second Trump term and uh, conversely, a potential Biden term? Just to be clear, the withdrawal from the World Health Organization was the most recent. You've had the United States withdraw from the 2015 Iran nuclear uh, agreement. We've already talked about the Paris climate deal. The United States did not participate in the global compact uh, on, on migration. We've uh, pulled back from certain trade uh, agreements, including the TPP. So there's a pattern here. There's a pattern here. And I would think it continues in Trump 2.0, and it's changed if there's a Biden administration. I think it rep represents a fundamentally, a really very different philosophy about America's, uh, the way it, uh, it deals with uh, the world. And you know, you'd have to go back in some ways, probably to uh, the Jacksonian tradition in American foreign policy to see certain elements of Mr. Uh, Trump. And Joe Biden is very much, uh, as they say on Saturday Night Live, Joe Biden is very much in the uh, tradition of, uh, I would say, pretty much the, from Truman through Obama and Republicans and Democrats alike. And essentially take working with alliances, working with the institutions, many, uh, many created in the aftermath of World War II. So it's a, again, it's this split between um, uh, unilateralism versus uh, multilateralism and uh, a willingness to see allies as partners rather than as competitors. So it's, it's, it's a fundamentally different worldview, which has real implications, uh, really, uh, on virtually every issue. I wouldn't have a ton to add. We've got a, a heavy on the international policy, given that it's Middlebury, uh, and I understand that, but I agree with that. And I think, you know, regardless of what happens, um, and, and, and Richard alluded to it earlier, the Capitol Hill, the Senate, the House, the committees, it's a good place to start. Um, if, if you are kind of disagree with the, the policy pr perspective and that's important to you, um, there's somebody there for you uh, to, to go work for and, and, and you, can, you can then work your way into a position um, you know, where you're influencing some of these decisions in a future president or whoever it may be. And, and that's important to note. Yes, ma'am. Hi, um, my question will be dealing with nuclear weapons and nuclear policy, and I guess it may be geared more towards Dr. Haas, but um, I wanted to ask, how do you see the nuclear policy field being impacted by the election results? Do you think we'll see increased focus on modernization, disarmament, et cetera? Um, and additionally, do you think there will be a decreased or increased emphasis on the use of diplomacy to build bridges with Russia on this issue? And how do you think that will affect careers available in, say, foreign service or diplomacy? Look, there's a lot going on with nuclear things, whether uh, just to quickly divide it, you've got what's traditionally called vertical proliferation, managing, say, the U.S.-Russian relationship, established nuclear powers. And as I said, in February, there's a big decision to make. But even if we extend the agreement, 
that leaves out the question of whether China participates in future agreements and also which systems are included. Uh, the technology is outpacing the diplomacy. So there's going to be fundamental questions about what systems and technologies are captured in, in future agreements. We've seen this historically, it happened when cruise missiles were invented, whenever there's new, again, new systems. So that's going to, uh, that's a growth area, shall we say, and a real, and a real challenge, uh, particularly against the backdrop of you know, the current state of US-Russian and US-Chinese relations. Then you've got all the proliferation issues, the horizontal ones with North Korea, Iran. And if we don't manage those too well, ultimately others. Uh, indeed, if Iran were to get nuclear weapons, or even close to them, I don't think the Saudis, the Turks, the Egyptians, and others would be, would be far behind. And if you think the Middle East is a bad place now, just imagine that one. Uh, so I think you know, all that's happening. And, uh, and more broadly, um, again, it's a science issue. Uh, we still have the labs run by the uh, energy department where a lot of this work takes place. So for those of you who are science oriented, indeed we need people there because a lot of the generations that were instrumental to developing nuclear weapons, a lot of those people have retired or died. So we actually have a, a certain gap in uh, people who know, uh, know a lot about things, uh, things uh, nuclear. But I, I think, again, whether you come at it from the science point of view, the policy and diplomacy point of view, uh, nuclear weapons remain one of the fundamental challenges and manifestations of globalization. I do not think it's going away. Uh, disarmament is not on the horizon. Uh, denuclearization is not coming to this North Korea. Uh, disarmament is not coming to the United States and the Soviet Union. At best, you're going to have arms control, and which just means limits uh, of one sort or uh, another. So again, this is this is this is no less important than it was. It's just not getting the attention uh, that it that it used to when during the Cold War, when this was seen as the principal arena of U.S.-Soviet uh, competition. I think now it's, it's a sense competing for attention with other things, be it pandemics or climate change uh, or, or, or you name it. But, but um, to those of you who are focusing on this set of issues, you will not be unemployed. I'm sorry to say, by the way, I wish uh, I wish I <laughs> wish I felt otherwise. So I think we have time for one more question. Uh, Drew. Thank you both so much for your time. Um, I'm going to direct my question to Mr. Matheson. Um, I think a lot of Middlebury students are very interested in working um, for policy advocacy, advocacy shops, like you mentioned, with those um, opportunities increasing, like you mentioned earlier. Um, I was wondering if you could shed a little light on the um, career pathways that get you there that are sometimes shrouded in mystery, especially, um, you know, maybe referencing whether there are potential entry-level opportunities or internships, or if you need to earn your policy stripes um, in all scenarios before working for um, in a career like yours? Yes, um, good question. Um, so I, I think, and I alluded to it earlier, that the Capitol Hill is kind of the traditional way to go, um, uh, or, or you know, the federal government writ large, but but more more the, the Hill. And I, and um, while you don't have to have that credential, uh, it, it helps. And everyone, as we're all feeling each other out as lobbyists and advocates up here, we kind of 
you get a sense of where the person's come come from politically, what his, his thoughts might be, but it's, it, and that's important, but the most important thing is you understand how Congress works, as you know from uh, polling and from, from your, uh, you know, comments earlier, it's, it's opaque, it makes no sense logically uh, to, to a certain degree. Um, and just knowing who the leaders are, who leads on what issues, um, who, uh, you know, will be in your camp or opposed to you, that takes sort of immersing yourself uh, in it. So I definitely recommend uh, The Hill. Um, there are uh, internships, you know, unpaid, some paid, available. Um, a really good way to get going, and this is political though, is to work on a campaign, um, sort of put in your time, um, particularly now surrounding these important elections with your local congressperson or some someone you have um, some interest in. Um, and then, you know, when they come to Washington, you can kind of uh, uh, get hooked up with the sort of junior level thing and, and then go from there. And, and it's, a, it's a great way to get yourself um, a lot of you know, power, for lack of a better word, at a very young age, you can you can affect policy directly in your early twenties um, if you're if you're able to be on Capitol Hill. And then, pivoting to 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 my position, um, you know, there are a few different ways to to crack in there, but almost always you're gonna they're gonna be looking from from Capitol Hill. So I I would I would recommend that. And I think now's a really good time. I mean, I know y'all are in school, but um, you know, volunteering on a campaign. If, if you're able to be in Washington or if there are alumni listening who, who are in Washington looking for a job or would like to come to Washington, there's a period starting about now where the Congress, people are leaving, people have already retired, people are going to lose those jobs. The, the current staffers are looking for other opportunities. Uh, may, many of them have gotten them. So you can sometimes get your foot in the door for two months in, a, in, a, in an office that's going away, uh, boost your resume, learn a little bit, make some relationships. So, you know, there, there are a lot of opportunities. Um, starting now until about the first three or four months of, of, a, of a new session of Congress uh, that will be open. Um, and, and even in the summer when, when some people are graduating or are ready for, for summer jobs. So, um, you know, I, I'm happy to talk to anybody individually about that stuff as well, if, if there's an interest there, because it's, 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 <laughs> it's not easy, but it, it's not, it, it's pretty self-explanatory. Jeff, can I just make two quick points just to Absolutely. piggyback on that? One is, uh, we haven't talked about it, but for a lot of what we've talked about, you are going to have to think about more education. As good as this Middlebury degree is, it is uh, rarely uh, enough anymore. Uh, so whether it's master's or doctorates, uh, that's for a lot of what we've talked about, that's going to be necessary either for what you learn or as a credential or both. Uh, without it, it could be a, a ceiling and with it, it could give you lots of uh, opportunity. Again, it's both, it's partially credential, let's be honest, but also a lot of it's just the, you gotta get, you gotta know certain stuff. Uh, so that's something that everybody, uh, I would think should, should think about. The other is, uh, one should, how would I put it? Uh, think tanks have gotta be part of the conversation. By and large, universities are places where you get degrees, but most American universities are no longer interested in participating in the policy debates. Policy relevant work mostly does not happen out of universities policy relevant work tends to happen out of uh, think tanks, mostly in Washington, to some extent in New, uh, in New York. And that ought to be something that you also think about. If you want to influence public policy, you can do it there. Ideas matter. It can also be a great way to learn as postdocs or pre-docs, uh, you know, whether it's internships or research assistant jobs at places like mine, the uh, Council on Foreign Relations or other institutions, Brookings, what have you. 
But you should think about that. Again, it's part of, you know, in your 20s, a lot of what you almost need to think about, you're investing in yourself and tooling up. And think tanks, a lot of these jobs on the Hill, in the executive branch, where have you, are great places to spend a couple of years. And I often tell people, you come spend a couple of years to council, but then we want to kick you out. Uh, go get that advanced degree. Go get that, that, that job and come, come back when you have your PhD. That's a different thing. But uh, so I, I think, but at this stage of life, when you leave campus, um, think about several stops in your 20s and the ideas industry conceivably could be one of them and further, uh, further educational uh, experience is probably also going to need to be one of them. I wish we had time for more questions. Um, I'd like to thank our students for joining in the conversation. Um, that's great. I love the question. To both of our guests, Richard and Chris, uh, thank you so much for your contributions to our understanding the two possible policy futures and uh, your advice and counsel when it comes uh, for the students as they consider career opportunities going forward. Uh, to the audience, thank you for joining us this evening. Uh, please stay tuned for future Live from DC episodes, uh, which will be coming in the spring, which will dive deeper into specific policy fields with alumni and parents uh, who are engaged professionally in those fields. Until then, good evening. Stay well, everybody. Appreciate this. <laughs>